You are wearing ritual mating colors. So I am. And yet the entire meal has passed without you. Queering? Yes, queering. Without you asking me a question. That's patently untrue. I have asked you many questions. About your family, Pasal's new loot recordings, your gallivanting about the galaxy with Starfleet. Gallivanting? Is there a particular question that you would like me to ask you? Apologies. I may have assumed too much. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton's brother, Sam. Sam Orton, stroking his mustache. (laughs) And we're here this week to talk about the premiere of Strange New Worlds, as well as the finale of Picard Season 2, Farewell. But I had a question before we start, and I think we're going to start with Strange New Worlds. But I was just curious, Tyler, what order did you watch these two episodes? I watched them uh, Picard first, Mm -hmm. and then Strange New Worlds. And I have a reasoning behind that. Um, Before I answer that Next question, though. Um, Which order did you watch them in, Cam? I did them in the exact same order. I was at my parents' on Wednesday night. I got home around midnight, and I figured, okay, I got time to watch one of these because they dropped about 12.01 on Crave here in Canada. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do Picard because at least my philosophy was I kind of want to be out with the old, in with the new. I want my palate cleanser after Picard if it doesn't deliver. So uh, for me, I was originally going to watch Picard early this morning. I just, uh, I got too busy before I had to start working. And the reason why is because I I didn't want to be spoiled on anything with regards to Picard, just because it's the finale. I think there's more likelihood of like big revelations to be made. Um, When I got home, I realized, you know what, I'd rather just eat my dinner first while I'm watching Picard. And maybe if I'm uh, throwing some sushi in my mouth uh, at the same time the show's on, you know, I can afford to be a little bit distracted, whereas I wanted my full attention at Strange New Worlds at all times. And um, I'm kind of glad that I went in the order that I went in, Cam, because um, Picard did not really justify its existence for me. It left me really uh, frustrated with the season as a whole. And I jump over to Strange New Worlds, and I was absolutely delighted Why? just how absolutely like delightful. <laughs> yes, I was delighted by how delightful it was, Cam. I'll say that. <laughs> underline and capitalize the word delight because I had a similar response to Strange New Worlds where I'm not going to say this is one of the all-time great Star Trek episodes. It's definitely one of the most confident, I think, launches we've seen to a new Star Trek show in a little bit. But what it really did well, I thought, was establish the tone it seems like they want to go for and the characters all felt really in place after that first episode. Obviously, I'd like to know more about some of them. But my takeaway was, like, the energy this show is giving is really something that I'm picking up. Well, the show just feels fun. It's the first time that a Star Trek series in live action hasn't come out of the gates just exclaiming to the audience, like, we are a super self-serious show and you better take us seriously at all times because we're super serious about it all. Uh, This is like, hey, let's have fun. And that's kind of what the promise we got from uh, Captain Pike at the start of Season 2 of Discovery. And I 
don't think they really followed through with that. You know, maybe episode one, brother, and after that, it it, it went back to the the dour default that Discovery is so known for. Yeah, he never got his magic to make the sanest man go mad in season two, did he? <laughs> Unfortunately, not. Um, but he did give us Sam Kirk at the very end of this. Can can we talk about this? I would assume like like ninety percent of Star Trek fans don't necessarily remember. You know, um, Sam Kirk from Operation Annihilate back in the original series and how it was actually his corpse was portrayed by one William Shatner (laughs) with a pasted on mustache. The fact that they were willing to kind of introduce, quote unquote, Lieutenant Kirk into the show. I I was laughing my ass off. I didn't think it was cheap. I thought, like, this is a show that wants to tell you we're here to have fun within the Star Trek universe right now. And that is not a message I've gotten from Discovery (laughs) or from Picard at all. This is why I'm all in on the show. I was very worried maybe it would disappoint me. Uh, Like, one episode in, um, I'm so far like quite elated by what they're delivering here what i loved about the sam kirk was too they had a setup to i mean obviously just mentioning kirk everyone goes james t kirk but also they'd like leaked out that news that they'd cast an actor to play kirk in season two so when they started mentioning kirk i'm like oh maybe the reason they leaked that news out was because he actually has a cameo in like the pilot or something I, i don't know and so like when he showed up and it was sam kirk it was even better. It just totally pulled the rug out from under me. And what a like hilarious and fun surprise, but not one that like relies on someone having watched Operation Annihilate. Well, do you know what would have annoyed me is if they ended the episode and all you see is like a boot walking out of the turbo lift after they said mm-hmm. that Lieutenant Kirk was on his way, then I just would have rolled my eyes because I would have been like, folks, come on, you were all the way there. You almost got to stick the landing then you had to biff it with one of those kind of dumb sort of teases that modern live action star trek has kind of built its entire re- uh, reputation on at this point the fact that they just kept having fun i'm like please keep doing that for the next like nine episodes that we get in this season like please keep doing that yeah and i mean i think there is a criticism that could be made about this sometimes feels like original series dress up to a certain degree. You know, there's moments where they're kind of replicating the um, Corbomite maneuver scene with Bones drinking the uh, the Romulan ale in his quarters. Um, there's moments throughout this pilot where I was like, oh, this is definitely paying you know homage to this moment or that in the original series. And I do hope as the show goes, it sort of establishes its own little world and we can, you know, kind of spin off in its own direction. But like in terms of like setting the tone and saying like, this is the energy we want to get back to. I thought it was incredibly successful. And honestly, there was Sam Kirk was amazing. So I have nothing bad to say about that. The the only moment that I really kind of like cringed at was the prime directive. That'll never stick moments like that to feel like they're kind (laughs) of like meta jokes that I'm not big on. But in terms of like, the kind of the nods to the original series i really enjoyed those and i thought they grounded us back in that world very well and i'm just really interested to see what they do with that mythology going forward query would you ever date a vulcan (laughs) query yeah would you ever say yes to a proposal (laughs) query do you understand now why t'pring didn't mind so much if uh, spock was having a duel to the death based on how he treated her and uh versus his own career yeah like t'pring again you could call that like just fan service but they actually gave us a little bit of insight into that relationship that will pay off later in the original series and it gave us some like spock personal life stuff that i've never really had that much access to so it just felt like 
they understood what sort of like fan service they could use to flesh out the characters as opposed to stopping the story dead. And I'm hoping they can do more of that because that was always one of the frustrations. If you're a fan of the original series and a fan of the Star Trek that would come later, there's not a lot of continuity in the original series, but you knew that certain things could have connected. And now we can kind of make that happen a little more so. I honestly, I just like the idea of like the Vulcans being giddy about the idea of being intimate with each other. You know, mm-hmm. like you had uh, Spock raise an eyebrow. You, you to Pring was like she wanted him to be there in the moment with him, and it's like uh, it's not as if like uh, horny Vulcans can't exist because they're all about suppressing their emotions, not having no emotions. But it's like uh, I was about to say, but they're human. But I like the idea that like um, Vulcans that they want intimacy, and we've. Asked ourselves a lot of, uh, about why Amanda would ever be in a relationship with Sarek. <laughs> I, I think Amanda and Sarek are getting it on more often than we may have thought over the last, you know, uh, 60 years or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, the original series. <laughs> that's my fan fiction, people. <laughs> I'll have it up on the blog soon enough. Don't worry. I, I, I got it going right now. And that's something like with the original series. It had kind of a little bit of a frisky vibe and something that the J.J. films uh, they had a couple moments that are pretty bad, but um, they had moments that were they're like, oh no, this is this is normal. Like this is what people do. There's a I remember a really fun moment at the start of um, Star Trek Beyond where it's just Kirk giving voiceover and you see like I think Chekhov, you know, outside of a woman's room or something, and it just kind of acknowledged that you know it's the future. These people are having fun, and I like that this show seems to be getting back to that. Even you know we get little glimpses of Pike's romantic life as well. Uh, yeah, you know, like, uh, it's kind of the, the frisky 60s uh, <laughs> back again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, moving forward, uh, like, uh, why don't we kind of dive into what kind of what the, the hook is of this episode? It's a series premiere, and, and similar to Broken Bow, you are dealing with a, a first contact gone bad. Uh, I, I guess you could even compare it to, uh, you know, uh, Encounter at Firepoint, you know, with uh, Q. You also have the Emissary with... Uh, first contact with the prophets as well. It, it is kind of, oh, and caretaker. Mm-hmm. First contact with caretaker. It is kind of a go-to thing that's these uh, uh, series like to fall back on. I, I, I'm okay with that because it kind of puts your characters in an interesting position and see how they get out of it. And I like the conceit that the reason why this more, you know, primitive species is developing warp bombs is because of actions that, you know, Kirk and Spock were involved, I should say, Pike and Spock were involved with in the season two finale of Discovery. You know, it's like their actions are having impacts on what's to come here. Like to me, I think that's just wonderful. And then watching them walk around like aliens, uh, Spock, like the, the whole conceit of him like turning into a Vulcan again, like and, and revealing his alien self. It, it's you know, like I said, it's Star Trek having fun with the universe and the rules in which it exists in, as opposed to just kind of retconning things and disregarding all of the kind of uh, the, the universe and the canvas that is Star Trek that we had known before. And like the moment where he just starts like doing the scream and it's like a very Vulcan controlled scream about the pain he's going through. It's like, I like the way that they were able to look at this species and make comparisons to earth. And, you know, obviously the tumultuous societies that we're going through now and of the past and of the future. And the way that they could ground that in a like very serious speech from Pike that still felt like uplifting and sort of like, I don't know, like almost like warm and cozy. Like it didn't feel like the way that, Picard or um, Discovery have the everything's based in trauma. You have to suffer through it. It's like, okay. Whereas I, I just love the moment where one of my favorite moments in the episode 
um, was a small moment, but it was, we had the alien factions all battling over what to do about the Enterprise, you know, up in the sky. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, the Watchmen graphic novel, really, with the squid, where the only way to kind of unite people was to create an extraterrestrial um, intelligence that would scare them. And kind of what's going on here with these factions all trying to debate what to do about the Enterprise. But you have Pike beam down right in the center of them, and he's like, oh, hi. And it's kind of played as this yeah. very light comedic moment. And, you know, it's just like, okay. And then he gives his speech, and I, I thought... In some ways, it's kind of cheesy. It's it's almost using some devices I've seen in like Michael Bay movies, where it's like slow mo scenes of people kind of just doing activities, like you know, uh, drawing things on a blackboard and stuff. The way you see like children playing baseball in slow mo during Michael Bay montages, but it worked, and I thought captured the uplifting spirit of Star Trek really well. Is it corny? Yeah, kind of. But Star Trek can be really corny even when it's at its best. So I thought it really worked. I also have to give uh, props to Pike for having that PowerPoint presentation um, ready to go for everybody. I mean, I have compatibility issues with Mac versus PC, mm. but uh, he's able to load it into uh, Aliens uh, uh, operating systems just like that. So, hey, uh, shout out, bro. It's like the Aliens in Independence Day with the virus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I, uh, I, I did like the introduction of Uhura in this one where he's like, the prodigy. And then in my head, it's like, sure sounds like she's a real discovery. Hope they don't leave her in the lower decks as they travel to strange new worlds. Har, har, har. That's amazing. How long did it take you to workshop that one? <laughs> Honestly, it was, pretty, it was pretty quick. You did that during the Picard finale, didn't you? <laughs> Um, <laughs> during uh, every moment that involved uh, uh, Q explaining his entire motivations. Um, I can get into that yeah, a little yeah. bit later on, Karen. But, uh. One of the moments that I really liked in this, too, was the moment where Pike is approaching the Enterprise. And it could be played as kind of a riff on the motion picture, which we just you know talked about a handful of weeks ago on the podcast. But what I really liked was the way they pivoted off the reactions, whereas Kirk is in complete wonder when he's approaching the Enterprise in space dock. Here, it's like Pike looking very wary and almost like sensing the doom of going back to the Enterprise. It was a nice little reversal on a very you know classic trope in Star Trek and a very classic moment from the original uh, first, mo uh, first movie. I, I was curious, though, like, what was the point of even um, taking the shuttle over there, other than getting the majestic look of the Enterprise when he simply just beamed aboard anyways? Uh, that said, I will pick it apart a little bit. Um, not the storyteller's fault. It's mostly just kind of the limits of this sort of stylized CG that they seem hooked on. Mm. But the majesty of the models used in the motion picture yeah. during that sequence... You just can't compare, you know, it, it's like the, the CG rendering here, it's a little cartoony, and it just doesn't carry the weight of it. And I mean that figuratively and literally is, is when you're looking at, like, models of the refit Enterprise too. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, that's something I feel like we just have to accept, as we've had to accept in most blockbusters nowadays. It's like, no, no, just get used to movies looking worse. It's okay. They just have to look worse. I don't understand that. It's so, I mean, it, it's entirely just time. It's like they don't want to take the time to do models. It's easier to just add the CG after in terms of dealing with, you know, on-set shooting. Uh, you know, there's a reason that there's like 27 blockbusters in, you know, theaters in like a summer nowadays. Not necessarily this summer, but in many others. It's because they can crank these things out faster and faster by cutting all these corners. And honestly, outside of film buffs, no one complains. 
I, I don't know. It's just like I, I think about what Neil Blomkamp can do as a director mm-hmm. using CG versus relying on uh, models. Which you look, uh, you you give the props to Christopher Nolan, yep. Denis Villeneuve, who they uh, perfectly integrate that the use of models and a, and a hint of CG as well. And Neil Blomkamp, he's like, you know what? I can actually do the CG photorealistic. And it's not like I've been a huge fan of his last couple of movies, but they still look spectacular. I I believe whatever I'm seeing on screen is, you know, like physically there versus just some sort of CG rendition. I don't understand why these films with budgets like uh, $250 million, why, why they're so just okay with looking like garbage. You know, think of a movie about like, um, Oh, what was a rock movie with, uh, he's on the uh, Amazon. Jungle Cruise. Cruise. Why am I blanket? Jungle Cruise. Yeah. It, th- that movie looked like garbage. It, it's kind of like, because they did in front of green screens and made like really fake looking like trees the, the entire movie. Where it's like, if they actually filmed that in like Puerto Rico or something like that, where they're on some sort of like river cruise, it would have looked a million times better. Also would have been cheaper, but Cam, I think you and I talked about this. I think you just pointed out, like, well, yeah, but it means that the the producers would have had less control over the elements. It mm-hmm. could have created some more production headaches. I'm just like, yeah, you would have made a much better movie. Yeah, and it's entirely about that avoiding complications, or in many cases nowadays too, it's uh, directors who've basically been launched onto a blockbuster from a low budget indie and don't really know how to do effects so they're like don't worry we'll handle all that that's all done in the back end we pre-vised all that stuff don't worry about it just shoot the actors we'll do the rest and that's how you get all this cg and i mean with strange new worlds i would love if they were doing practical models but it's like who's even is it this stuff just all happening on the back end and like people being brought in to shoot the show just have nothing to do with it i would guess uh, w- sorry. Uh, what what do you mean by that? Well, I mean in the sense that, like, with this show, it would probably is operating the same way as blockbusters, where the directors are coming in to shoot the actors, and all the effects stuffs being done on the back end that the directors aren't really associated with at all. So it's just how do we get this done quickly and fire it out the door? Yeah, but you know, you look at a show like Orville, and Seth MacFarlane was very insistent that they use models. Yeah, and so it is still possible within the realm of television to do so. And and like honestly, I, uh, I I'm not a huge fan of Orville, but or the Orville, um, I still think that it looks far more visually spectacular than anything we've seen in live action modern Star Trek at this point. Yeah, and when you ask me what is the most visually impressive moment of newer Star Trek, my answer is the location at the start of season three discovery where they went to like Iceland, which they don't normally do things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's practical. Um, <laughs> actually the most spectacular thing I've ever seen in Star Trek came in this episode when Spock was wearing Angus Young from ACDC short shorts when uh, they landed <laughs> on the uh, planet. <laughs> that, that was pretty awesome there. Yeah. And it all felt like grounded in character. And that's something that, I've just always been really baffled as to why some of the other shows just didn't have more humor and just ground it in the characters. People will go along for the journey, and that way when you have the shifts into the serious, people take it more seriously. Um, I mean, when Pike is giving his speech, it's not like the audience is like laughing through those moments. It's letting us go on the journey with that character and having the fun moments, having the serious moments. Um, I thought a lot of the problem with modern Trek is like every character is defined by trauma, it seems. But in this case with Pike, 
I feel like we really understand it. Yes. It's like, they can show us this. We've seen it in season two Discovery, what this means to him. And it's hard not to, not necessarily relate. It's not something I experienced particularly, but it's something we can completely understand and wrap our heads around. It's a very simple psychology for the character that you just have to kind of set it up, explain it. We go, I get it. And I can completely empathize with this character. I'm surprised. Um, I thought you always stare at time crystals and get visions of your own mortality, Cam. Is that, <laughs> is that, that not true? Do, is that what we call the mirror nowadays? Time crystals? Because if so, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, um, but look, I, I, I think maybe if we take a step back and think of this episode like broadly, mm. um, the reason it's pe- appealing to me is the storytelling in which... Everything's kind of encapsulated into, you know, the uh, the 54 minutes or so here. And that, like, if this is the one and only episode of Strange New Worlds that I ever saw, I would feel completely satisfied. And it's not as if there's some sort of mystery box elements that is just meant to make you, you know, skip past the cliffhanger and jump to the next episode right away. It's mostly like they make it feel earned, your viewership. You know, that you want to come back because you're enjoying these characters. You feel satisfied by the entirety of this story that they just gave you. I think that's like far more confident than all this mystery box cliffhanger stuff that we've been just complaining about for five years now. Yeah, and it did, you know, two things. It showed us Pike kind of getting his groove back. In some ways, this actually reminded me a little bit of Emissary, where you had Cisco kind of regaining his faith in his mission going forward due to his experience with the Prophets there. And here you had Pike not really wanting to go back to the Enterprise, but finding sort of the confidence and the faith in his crew and his mission to journey forth in, you know, the show. So I found, like, that story quite compelling. And then you also had uh, Lon essentially finding her place with this crew, someone who doesn't necessarily work well with others, you know, learning to respect Pike. And hopefully that character's journey is interesting going forward. But I thought those two stories in isolation in this episode set up, and payoff like by the end i was very satisfied with where we went with those two characters okay can we get into the what laon's backstory must be she's talking about her family was in a colonizing ship and this is laon nuni and singh mm-hmm. uh they've already said that she is related to khan somehow in camp there's a big con shout out in the uh the finale of uh of picard that we can uh, pick apart here but before we get to that um it, it, it might believe like it, this isn't kind of like uh, a Botany Bay sort of situation where it's like it's a colonizing ship from like the 1990s, similar to Khan, but it's more like she's she must be like a descendant and their family went colonizing and then got hit by some Gorn encounter. And I don't know that they, they turned into like breeding sacks or <laughs> The Gorn nursery is like I'm trying. I was very confused when she was kind of explaining her backstory there. Maybe it's just me. No, I think um, I'm in the same boat. And they are, I think, obscuring some details for further down the road that you know they can kind of drop some hints as to what this character's true backstory is. Here, it's just like, yeah, I'm kind of with you. I was a little confused, but just the sense she was the last survivor of her group. You know, as she said, kind of the fish thrown back into the into the sea before Una helped her. Um, I really don't quite understand. So, I mean, I don't know. This is how many like years after Khan? It's like quite years a long before. This is well years before th- he's is... reawakened. But like he like flew off into space in like 1996, I think, in oh, the Botany okay, Bay, yeah. right? So this is like 
several hundred years after he left there. Like, when, I don't know. Like, I can't tell if she's just a long, further down the road descendant, or if this is somehow tied to Khan from Space Seed or something. Well, this is what I'm ultimately going to be asking myself every time she's on screen. Is like, what's the point of making her related to Khan? Yeah, because, hold on now, I'm just doing the timeline. No, so, like, Khan has not been reawakened. He's frozen in on, on the Botany Bay. So this would have to be just a long-term descendant from him back on, I don't know, Earth in 1996 or something like that. But um, So, yeah, no, well, it's... So what, no, no, so what I was trying to wonder, though, is, like, maybe there were more than... I, I My understanding is, is more than just the Botany Bay that took off from Earth. Like, sure. there could have been multiple ships containing, you know, these augments and... Uh, you know, in the wake of the eugenics war. So what I was wondering is like maybe her family was among those kind of sleeper ships on the way to colonize and then it got intercepted by the Gorn. Is it that sort of situation or is it just that she's some sort of descendant and they're not really making the connection obvious to us yet? I'm just like, it's obscured for now. Yeah. We're both a little confused about what, what it all means or why it even matters. I think you can get away with just having this character as played by Christina Chong, just as she is, without giving her that very iconic last name, mm-hmm. you know? So, I don't know, I'm just going to be annoyed if it's not something of, of real substance, though. Like, that's the thing that makes me a little bit wary about this character for the moment, even though I like this character. I'm, I'm digging her so far. Yeah, she really, I think, popped into her, you know, in this first episode. It was someone who I was like, oh, I'm really interested in seeing more of this character. But, you know, I I was kind of with you. When the character keeps saying things like, you've read my file, you've read my file, it's like, okay, okay, fine. Drag it out, (laughs) drag it out, sure. (laughs) Um, If you want to get into the aesthetics of it, uh, look, this is not quite the same bridge that we saw in the season two finale of Discovery. I think they're going for the more retro look in Discovery with regards to the 1701's bridge. And the corridors, I should add, you know, that orange-red sort of look was more highlighted there. I honestly, I, I just, I I wish they felt more competent to kind of embrace the retro look mm. here. You know, they, they, they still kind of make this look like the Apple Store, very much like the JJ movies. Um, I, I'll give props to the uh, the look of the sick bay. I thought that was more kind of embracing of the retro look, but it still doesn't really remind me of the uh, sick bay from the original series. Uh, you give me those foot exercise pedals <laughs> at some point, and I will be a happy man. That's all I'm saying. Do you think it was intentional to try to appeal to people who haven't watched Discovery or Picard, but maybe watched the JJ films, like to try to say, like, hey, this is connected to those JJ films, at least visually, in terms of their marketing? I just, I just wonder if that's such a small sliver of the potential audience that would yeah. jump over. I think they could have made it just like I'm not saying you need to recreate like knobs and levers, you hmm. know, like uh, you, you had back in like the 1960s, but have something that kind of, you know, like uh, uh, calls back to that styling just a little bit more than we got here. Whether it's the shape of the quarters, just a little bit more, you know, this looked like. This looked like a ship that could have easily have existed in the uh, 25th century as we know it from that uh, big fleet that we saw in the Picard finale, right? You know, and it it doesn't look as if, 
You know, it, like I, I, I'm also thinking like I, I, I like the way that they handled the look of the NX01 in which it felt a little bit more analog mm. than what we we're getting in TNG era, and you know maybe it looked a little bit more futuristic in terms of all the uh, the flat screen monitors that existed here versus in TOS, but I could still kind of wrap my head around it being kind of a retro sort of ship, you know, 150 years or maybe just 100 years uh, earlier than the 1701. And yet it looks low tech, uh, more low tech than the ships from um, Discovery, the first episode where there was like holograms all over the place. <laughs> oh, uh, remind me of that again. Oh, don't you remember like, oh, the aesthetics of like the Shenzo really threw people at first because there was like hologram people. Um, it just did, it felt way more high tech than uh, what we'd seen on Enterprise or the original series. Well, I, I would understand why it felt more high tech than Enterprise because those shows took place 100 years apart. So, but even yeah. the original series, it was just like it looked. It looked more advanced than anything on TNG. Oh, abs- yes, a hundred percent. That I, I mean, I could kind of, I, I could wrap my head around more of a visual reboot. But I just, I think, just you know, it, it was maybe if they just embraced the colors of the original series a little bit more here in this new show, I, I, I would have dug it. You know, although look. Give it to the uniforms here. Like uh-huh. they are kind of putting like a cool touch on these uniforms. Look, I think I think sixties fashion, probably the you know, one of the fashion eras that don't look so dated, you know, when you go from decade to decade. Like people were looking pretty styling back then, and that really works in the costuming department here versus look at the TNG costumes like from the eighties and nineties. It looks like, yeah, I'm looking at something from the eighties or nineties. It really does, and especially in the motion picture of the 70s. <laughs> yes. But, yes. I, I, you know, the uniform colors, plus there was the moment where the three of them went into, like, the, the meeting room, and I thought, like, that looked beautiful, where you had the uniforms, plus you had, like, the red on those chairs, like, really popped on my TV, and I'm like, there's just, like, a joy of color and brightness and vivid just, you know, set deck mixed with these uniforms that I'm like... This has been missing for so long. And, you know, there's visual stuff in Discovery that I think really works. I think Picard's maybe less accomplished in terms of its visuals that I really think that much of. But, like, Discovery was always kind of like this dark, kind of almost like doom-laden kind of look. Versus here, it just really was vivid. Yeah. Um, Just in terms of some of the other sets that we got to see, uh, that kind of, like, meeting room, it looked as if it was meant to be the captain's ready room that they kept going back into but there is a very different sort of meeting room back in the original series that i think was adjacent to some of the corridors rather than the bridge Mm -hmm. and also it seemed to be missing that really cool triangular kind of uh monitor set so i guess those are different it's like supposed to be different rooms but um they, they looked like each other and they kind of had similar shapes to them so um i like it what we're seeing here but it just it, it seemed a little bit too similar but then a little bit too distinct from what i think it was meant to emulate uh from you know 66 years ago i mean i guess it's entirely possible that the uh, room would be um changed considerably before kirk even took over like how often do they do renovations on the enterprise maybe it's quite often <laughs> Well, I don't think this is the same room, though, because it seems as if it's directly adjacent to the bridge, whereas the one on the original series was adjacent to corridors. Yeah. So that's why I was a little scratching my head about what it was supposed to be, despite the fact it looks so like so very similar to what we saw back in the original series. 
Yeah, I'd have to pull out a uh, map on the bridges. I, I guess they probably haven't put one out yet for uh, for Strange New Worlds. But I would be curious to see if maybe sometimes they're even trying to avoid those classic locations to create some new rooms of their own, possibly. Yeah, well, we did get a bit of a, a, a new sort of mess hall, one with lots of windows attached to it. It mm-hmm. looks uh, pretty happening, uh, very similar to the Discovery Lounge that was introduced in Season 4. Uh, we only saw like a, a brief glimpse of it. Same with engineering. Let me ask you about engineering, because it, it, it's like long and deep, Yep. similar to what we saw in the original series. But otherwise, it doesn't quite... Um, match kind of that that visual template that uh, they had set out it also seems a little bit different remember the uh the short trek i think it's the one where pike becomes like a sociopath and makes that cadet believe that her husband's been killed and then i think you end up in engineering by the end that version of engineering also looks quite distinct from what we got here and in the very brief glimpse that we got yes and ask not um yeah, the engineering i haven't gotten a like strong vibe of it yet i'm looking forward to seeing when hammer is actually as an engineer, um, look, seeing, getting some scenes there because one thing that always really adds to my sort of appreciation of these rooms is seeing you know actors and characters interact with them because I always think of you know the way Trip it works with the engines or Scotty or Bolana Torres. So I'm looking forward to getting some actual time where the characters can kind of make the environment their own because so far, yeah, it it was kind of like brief and I was like, huh, that looks different. Oh well, moving on. You know, I, I do want to go back to that appearance of Hammer because we mm-hmm. were going through it last week and you had said, oh yeah, he's part of the main cast, Bruce Horak uh, playing Hammer. I was like, no, 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 he's in the, uh, he, he's a recurring character. He was in the main credits, so I, I take that back. You were correct, sir. I'm not going to take that much responsibility. I blame Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, you, Wikipedia, you led me astray right there. So, uh, but yeah, I, I want to give that uh, over to you there. Um, but I'm curious, like, it wasn't as if they had to dump, like, five-minute, like, mo- montages and soliloquies from all these main characters all in the first episode. Like, they're they're setting up uh, La'on here. We've already met Spock, Pike, and number one prior to this. Um, if they don't get around to Ortega or, say, uh, Hammer for a little bit, I- I- I'm okay with that. Um, I did like... Uh, Chapel and Dr. Memega, like they were having fun. They were amazing. It seems as if they really, they really like their job and they really like each other, like just hanging out. Watching Chapel chase down the uh, security guy, the alien security guy, like, um, or as uh, uh, Memega like, called him, like, chase that little rabbit. Down. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, yes, this is fun, Star Trek. Thank you. I know. I would watch a whole spinoff just based off this of those two just hanging out in the med bay, apparently joking around and having the time of their lives. I was like, there's a level of energy here that I just really appreciate. And it's it's comic without being, you know, cornball jokes and stuff. But it was just really funny to watch the two of them. I guess what we have to look forward to is McCoy really bringing the mood down in a couple years. No kidding, right? Like, that would be such a bizarre transition now if we get towards the end of the series and they bring McCoy in. It's like McCoy, who I always think of that shot of him just sitting in the med bay alone drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why uh, Chapel's not having as much fun with him. He's just drunk and surly all the time. Yeah, and uh, and Benga is, like, in two episodes of the original series, like, what is he thinking once, like, McCoy's aboard and he's like, well, I'm here, but, like, boy, this place is really uh, a lot less fun than it used to be. Yeah. Um. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'm just confabulating this in my own brain, but when Sam Kirk was assigned to Spock, 
did I notice just kind of like almost like a, a cringe on Spock's face? Am I making that up or did you notice something of that same sort there too? It was definitely a reaction and I wasn't, yeah. I, I didn't really know what it was and I didn't have an answer to that when the episode ended either. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, look, I, I don't think Sam Kirk is going to be a significant part of the series going forward, but if this is kind of planting the seeds for kind of the, uh, the, the relationship to follow with his brother in the next season, that could be interesting. Uh, I want to see more of the kind of arrogant sort of jerk version of Spock a little bit as well that we got to see in the original series. That that was a lot of fun. I don't think you set up that character in the first episode with him acting like an arrogant jerk at first, but uh, you do set him up by making him look like powerfully ripped during the, uh, the lovemaking sequence, though. <laughs> I feel like we're going to get a fair amount of that because this is a very attractive crew. <laughs> and I think that, you know, just everything I've read, they're like, we do kind of want to make Star Trek sexy again. I think uh, I remember when Enterprise was coming out and a lot of the press was like, this is going to be sexy Star Trek. And I think this show is going to lean a little more in that direction than we're used to coming off of Picard and Discovery. Okay. I'm looking forward to all the uh, decon gel sequences uh, moving ahead. <laughs> well, it could okay. still be around. No. Okay, Cam, why don't we switch over to Farewell? Um, I wish they called this episode Good Riddance. <laughs> uh, I, I, I never thought season two of Picard could be this awful. This just terrible. Um, let, let, let me tell you what kind of epitomizes it for me in this moment, where for you know the past 30 years, we understood that just implicitly that the reason why Q was so interested in Picard is that he took a liking to him. This omnipotent being took a, a liking to this kind of little favorite special pet. And when you have Picard, as we know him now, Gollum Picard, begging Q to explain his motivations, and Q point blank says, even gods have favorites and you're mine. It kind of, it's like when you have to explain the punchline to a joke mm -hmm. to somebody who, even though the person gets the joke and they kind of like chuckle, and then you double down and you explain the punchline, it, it absolutely kind of ruins the joke. And then they, they don't even find it funny anymore. And this is kind of what this whole series has done since it started for me. And he's going on about how he's his favorite. And I'm like just flashing back to him, like slapping elderly Picard across the face yes. in the first episode. And I'm like, what? Like this, this doesn't line up. And they obscured his motivations the entire season. And ultimately it's about he wants... Picard to live a life because he's going to die alone he wants Picard to have a life with someone I guess he's helping him all out um like for his future for his whatever remaining years he has left and I'm like I, I don't hate this I don't hate the idea of Q who's been around a long time and saying you know I'm coming to an end and he sees in Picard something that he wants to help him with kind of one final favor for someone who he's kind of tangled with all these years Maybe it would help, though, if Q had had more than 15 minutes of screen time over 10 episodes. Well, also, within those, you know, 15 minutes of screen time, he's working with Soong. Uh-huh. Uh... Well, that's the problem. Most of his um, screen time is with Soong. He spent very little time with Picard whatsoever. And I was very confused. So, like, he was working with Soong to ensure that Renee would not be able to launch her mission. Mm-hmm. But... The whole point was Q wanted all this to unfold so that the Borg drones would attack the chateau, create those bullet holes that would remain there until the, <laughs> the 24th century. But that was all in an order so that 
Picard and Talon can have that real that 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 existential exploration of his psyche, so that he could come to terms and and relieve himself of guilt over his mother's death. Like that's why Q is teaming up with Sung. Like it's just it's so unbelievably convoluted here. Like and, and you really have to make like big leaps in your own like kind of like logical thinking here to figure out what the writers were trying to accomplish with this. And I think this is where this whole 10 episode movie crumbles, which is like you and I have seen many movies that are say two hours where they get muddled and you're like, Oh, this one's not very well plotted. And these 10 hour ones, I don't even know what to make of them anymore. Cause I've encountered a few, like I found moon Knight. I'm at the just past the halfway point. I'm like, boy, this feels really muddled at a certain point. It's like, I think it takes very, very good people, very, very good writers to assemble these like 10 episode arcs that are actually very clean throughout without breaking them into episodes, like actually hour long stories that kind of stand on their own, but are connected to a larger whole. That is not what these do. These are all connected. And so they're just chunks. And to have them all add up to something after you've watched them a week apart, it's it's like a Herculean task that they are not up to. And this one just crumbled as I watched Q explain his motivation. And they tried to have a farewell that had sort of the, um, I guess, emotional impact of Data's farewell at the end of season one, but just fell flat because I was so annoyed. Just all I kept thinking was him slapping Picard across the face. That's all I could think of. <laughs> uh, yeah, honestly, the, there's very few series that have ever successfully accomplished, you know, those quote unquote, you know, these are just chapters in a movie, blah, blah, blah. I would say The Wire did that successfully. I would say Game of Thrones did that successfully, at least for its first, you know, uh, you know, seven seasons uh, before that show kind of went off the rails. Um, but ultimately, I got to the end of this episode and I kept asking this, uh, myself this question, you know, what is this with regards to a story all about Jean-Luc Picard. This longing for company hmm. and escaping a life of loneliness, this is never like the defining characteristic of his. He was a man who was who he was because he's chosen duty and work over everything in his life. And when he started playing cards with his crew, his kind of adopted family at the end of All Good Things, it was an incredible breakthrough for him. But what we're finding out now through this retconning is that what's motivated him to choose duty and work over everything else in his life is shame over his own mother's suicide, which I just like, I, it, 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 it seems insensitive on the writers to almost kind of cheapen, you know, such a serious subject like this as to just kind of a building block into Picard's psyche even though it's never been anything touched on or hinted at ever before in the past it's out of nowhere and they want to create such importance upon this but it's like this has nothing to do with the picard that we've ever known before which is why it's so frustrating here it's just pulled out of thin air well imagine this was an element of the character we knew i don't know maybe they revealed it in season two or three tng and then you had an episode in season six where like a crew member died and you could see how that impacted you know, Picard, that would feel earned and you go, okay, this was set up and now we're having payoff because I remember many Enterprise people dying along the way. Cedo Jaxa, there's one. Um, there's many others. And I, I never got the sense Picard was shattered by these experiences and having flashbacks to this trauma with his mother. And it's all just built into this one story that 
as you said, it, it's like this is not the Picard I know, and it feels very cheap and calculating of the writers to essentially introduce an element that you are going to have a visceral reaction to. Someone's mother hanging themselves is going to have every single audience member, regardless of their life journeys, kind of like go like, oh, that's really awful. And it feels very kind of almost tacky to work it into this story, I think. Yeah, speaking about the story here... Okay, remember last week we left off with the Borg Queen saying, there's one Rune who has to live, the other one has to die. And like, okay, what does that mean? And it's because Talon has to accept that she needs to let Sung touch her on the face. But like, after she walked out of that room, disguised as Rune, the Rune who has to die, why didn't she just kick him in the balls and, I don't know, like, uh, tie him up and hide him in a broom closet until the launch happened. Like, that would have just made more sense than her letting herself, like, die. And how does she know that Sung was going to, like, kill this Rene imposter in the way that he did and it would all work out and, and he wouldn't uh, figure out his plan was being foiled as it happened? Um, I guess supervisors work in mysterious ways. And yeah, when like he was killing her with neurotoxin palms, I was like, oh my God, like what is going on in this show? This is insane. And as you said, like Dr. Soong has not been set up as someone who's a formidable force. Like this is not a criminal mastermind here. When we first met him, he was a frustrated scientist that Q was sending to go you know, thwart this mission. What did he do? He tried to run Picard down in the street. <laughs> that is not a skilled criminal mastermind. And then here we have him in a stairwell or something with neurotoxin stuff on his hands, like he's some sort of spy. And like, what? Like, it's crazy. Like, I don't have a pro. Well, I think it's pretty like lazy to have Soong as your villain of the season. But nonetheless, let's say you want to use Soong. At least set this character up as someone who is, like, dastardly, who's maybe manipulative, who's a very strong planner and would have a scheme that makes sense, as opposed to, like, someone who got, you know, his arm behind his back, basically, and forced into this and is, I don't know, taking people out in very bizarre ways, and for some reason they're going along with it. Well, well good thing that Renee was able to get that, you know, uh, micro-species <laughs> uncovered from uh, Jupiter's moon, bring it back to Earth, fix the ecology, all before World War Three happened and destroyed life as we know it. And it's just like, and they're also talking about the fate of Rios, who you suggested very early on, and I was saying, no, it'll never happen, that they would leave Rios behind. Um, I figured it couldn't happen because the writers kept hammering her heads how you can't have any effects on the timeline. I'm like, okay. So Rios and Dr. Teresa, they hang around and they live through the Third World War somehow, all the while making the world better and cleaning the oceans. And Rios dies in a bar fight? <laughs> and it's it's supposed to be romantic? And Guinan's like, and his last breath was on a puff of a cigar. And we're all supposed to go like, ooh, wow. I'm like, this show is garbage. They don't, like, it's comical how bad they don't it, Kim, you know like the um the person who thinks they're funny um maybe you're pointing at me right now but the person who thinks they're funny but when they do the delivery they just cannot read the room yeah. and it just falls totally flat this is what i think the writers ha happened to them like this entire season where they just did not realize how flat everything was falling here um especially just with the musical cues when like wesley appears 
And mm. this gets back to just the competency of whoever's making the show. It's like Wesley appears and he's like, hi. And then the music wait. swells. Like, wait, wait, I'm, co- I'm confused, Heather. I thought that was just Will Wheaton walking in from the ready room considering he was wearing street clothes. <laughs> really? <laughs> Where his uh, his sleeves of tattoos like showing like um <laughs> like people look it up like Will Wheaton's got like two sleeves of tattoos I'm not joking here mm. um but it's it, the, the editing was so bad because like the music swells and that's what they're playing into but Corey's reaction isn't to this it, it's not a profound moment to her and the editing is so abrupt because they have to like chop off that swelling like self important melodramatic music because Corey's reaction isn't like melodramatic go back and watch that scene it is so bizarre and it's just poorly edited and it's just it it tells me that they just they don't know what they're doing here like just on a base competency level this is embarrassingly bad and again remember you know we have that uh revelation of Borg Queen Girardi towards the end of the episode and the music swells once again and then you do the immediately sudden abrupt act cut and the music changes again and then you're seeing like uh an exterior shot of the big armada once more i'm just like what are you like i just it it, it, i don't know how this even got through like just the basic like notes of executives like are are executives who people complain about their notes but are are they not giving any notes are are they not just saying like this is trash like fix this and notably those sorts of transitions were not in strange new worlds yes Oh, oh I, I forgot to mention, one of the most, like, beautiful moments in Strange New Worlds is when they um, have, uh, like, a little kind of musical cue playing after the main credits when you're on Vulcan. And it's just kind of like, you see the exterior of Vulcan, and you have a musical cue, and it kind of reminded me of, you know, back in, like, those uh, 80s, 90s TV shows where, you know, Magnum P.I., you see kind of the exterior of a, a Hawaiian island, there's a little bit of a musical cue, and then you cut to kind of the characters talking. It, it's kind of going for, like, this 80s, 90s retro vibe. You, you'd see that a lot with, like, I don't know, um, the, the Seinfeld bass playing, you know, outside of his apartment, and then you cut to, like, what's going on in his apartment. It's just kind of like, it, 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 I don't know, it, it's totally tugging on the member berries there, but it, it's kind of a musical cue that actually works whereas these ones don't they're just so like self-important and they're very very jarring and it's just i don't know there's just this weird lack of competency about the people running this show but let's get back to the wesley thing one of the (sighs) biggest head scratching ripped out of a fan fiction script moments i've ever seen (laughs) in the history of star trek where i don't hate the idea of Wesley coming back as, you know, a traveler. It's set up. Makes sense. Maybe tie that into a story that would pay that off, as opposed to dropping it willy-nilly to pay off a non-character in your season. Like, Corey is not a character. Like, I don't know, her life to me, you could have said, I don't know, she just goes and joins society. I'm like, cool, makes sense. She gets her own life, independence, sounds good. The fact that they wrote Will Wheaton into this bizarre moment where he's like, oh, hey, I'm a traveler, and by the way, I also um, oversee the supervisors who look after the galaxy. We're kind of like space cops or something like that. Anyways, here's my pitch. Come join me. You want to go? Great. Let's go. Peace. You know, like, eh? What? This happened in, like, (laughs) two minutes. It Probably less. It was insane. But he's also like, the universe is flawless, but it's always a thread's pull away from falling apart. (laughs) 
doesn't sound so flawless to me, Wes. And it's also, why did he ask her to be a traveler? Like, did he, did she really impress him that much with her VR skills this episode? Or like, like I realize that she's like uh, genetically, like, uh, like a genetic creation of Sung's. But does that automatically qualify her to be a traveler? Like, somebody of like exceptional, like. Um, not only like smarts, but just kind of this spiritual quality that we saw uh, Wes have at, 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 as the series went on. I, I was speechless when I saw it. I, I was just like, I am just stunned that this is how they are paying off that Corey character. Because had you shown she had some sort of, you know, abilities that stood out in a way like Wesley, they always established, had some sort of special thing about him, which the Traveler mentioned in, like, whatever, a very early episode in season one, where uh, no man has gone, or where no one has gone before. And, I mean, at least that was something. Whereas here with Corey, we didn't spend any time. Corey's not a character. We spent no. one episode plus a few brief snippets with her. She was very good at dramatically deleting files um, at a point <laughs> where, you know, soon could watch them all disappear one after another. I mean, Classy act, lady. That's very cinematic. But um, I, I, this felt like the cheapest, just kind of like Star Trek Renegades or of Gods and Men type yeah. solution to this. Uh, it's not even a problem because it was just entirely unnecessary. Also, Cam, um, season one of Picard, it was all about uh, the titular character. Uh, but second to that, this story, the, the plot, I should say, really centered on Soji. Um, we saw her in episode one. Yep. And that was that. Yes, it She's was. She's gone from the show. Uh huh. It's like, do we see Soji again? I don't know. I, I think we're more likely to see Corey. Um, uh, I don't know. Is she now going to be a guardian of the transwarp conduits that was created by a mysterious species that is obviously going to be the center of kind of the season three storyline moving forward that's going to require the return of all the uh, TNG crew? I, I don't know. Who knows? I Yikes. don't know. And why did the uh, Agnes Gerardi board queen look so bad? When they uh, I know saw her in the uh, you know on the Stargazer bridge, I was like, "This looks awkward. This looks like um, a friend of the show Scott Hardy was saying it looked like one of those apps like for putting your face on like a cat or something like that." <laughs> okay, she she was mega filtered. I could tell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she yeah she, she was out catfishing people. Cam, <laughs> it just looked awkward, and I don't have like any. In in terms of like the Borg warning them against a greater threat, again, that's okay. It's not a bad setup or anything, but like they're like, by the way, there's this big like anomaly thing or whatever that we spent like all of like 30 seconds to a minute dealing with. I'm like, huh. Oh, okay. Fair enough. It was weird in that it was a finale that in some ways I think it was actually superior to the finale of season one and that it mostly gave not satisfying answers, but answers to everything it had set up um whereas season one you had Narek wandering off who, who knows what was going on you had tentacles out of nowhere i don't know what was going on this one it's like it kind of gave kind of you know it kind of wrote everything out but it was just weird and felt incredibly rushed and i've noticed one thing when we've been doing this podcast usually these season finales when i look at them you know the counter on my uh, player uh they're usually close to an hour and, like, this one, when I saw it, was, like, 47 minutes. I was like, I, I don't know what's going on with this show. Like, it feels like they have a lot they could cover in this finale, but they just kind of rushed through everything. Even the Europa mission was, like, nothing. That was just a blink-and-you'll-miss-it kind of, you know. Oh, it's it, by the way, it happened. It all went fine. Okay, cool. 
Cam, did you feel any tension when the drones were after uh, <laughs> after this ship? <laughs> There's literally like a countdown timer. I'm just like, oh, yeah. Uh, you're taking a page out of the uh, book of hacky screenwriting. I'm just like, good for you. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of grown tired of CG drone attacks in movies where, uh, you know, it kind of hinges on stopping drones. And I was not thrilled to see that carried over here onto Star Trek Picard, you know, the most philosophical and reflective Star Trek series on the air currently. Oh, so philosophical, Cam. I learned so much, you know, just how Rios learned a whole lot about why he loved the 21st century for the uh, 72 hours that he was there, you know, 24 of which were spent in ice detention, and then he maybe spent a solid, you know, 15 conscious hours with Dr. Teresa and her son before he decided he was going to spend the rest of his life and perhaps, you know, uh, mess up the timeline. But you know what? Maybe it was always meant to happen that way, Cam. Maybe. That was one of those just hand wave away, like, oh, don't worry about it. Just like, I, I laughed so hard at the moment. I'm going to like not quote it exactly because it's funny or not to, but the moment where they go back to the bridge of the Stargazer and I think Picard, you know, I can't remember, who does he make like first officer position? Uh, He gave it to seven of nine. Seven uh, of she nine. was seated in the captain's captain's seat. Either way, seven of he nine. Gave, yeah. gave, well, he gave her, he said, this is like your field commission. Right. And then she hops into the captain's seat with right. Rafi in the first officer's chair. It was all very confusing, but go go ahead, sir. But then that crew member goes, where's Captain Rios? And he's like, shut up, Ensign. <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. That seems like a pretty good question to ask. <laughs> but also, uh, then Elnor follows up on screen. And then he's like, where, where am I? <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> Oh my god and then well, and then also like i, I was so confused because raffi was supposed to be i think on either the excelsior or the reliance you know prior to the uh big like blowing up of the armada and then she just shows up in the turbo lift here in her uniform and then i was thinking oh well i, I was so confused for the first like four minutes it's like do they have the memories of this adventure that just unfolded or is it only picard who does and did Q? I have no idea. And like, did Q? Um, did he die when he did that? Was that his final act before he died? That's my understanding. Okay. Okay. Um, sure. And I also wondered why he couldn't send them back a little bit earlier. <laughs> like that seemed kind yes. of cruel. <laughs> yes. You know. Oh boy. Uh, I mean, okay. the Elnor thing. Uh, it actually had one of the funniest moments in the episode, and I'm going to give them credit for this, where they referenced Elnor and Q went who. <laughs> That made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. That got a good Actually, laugh. The other thing is like they're uh, they're hanging out at the bar with Guinan at the end, and then Picard's like, "It's it's my family," and there's like three people like we barely care about sitting at a table. Yeah, most <laughs> of them are like, gone. <laughs> it's like, okay, Rios is like a picture on the wall. Ugh. <laughs> uh, uh. Um, so I guess, I don't know, I, I I would hope they keep the Stargazer around next season. I'd like to see, just logically, I guess, Rafi as the captain. Do you think 709 is back in Starfleet? Like, if Janeway couldn't make it happen, then Picard's going to make it happen somehow? My guess is yes. I think they're going to keep 7 around um, and and probably Rafi. I, I saw that uh, Evan Agoria, who obviously plays Elnor, put up like an Instagram post that he's not going to be in Season 3. So I guess it's just going to be Seven and Rafi. And I who knows what's going on with uh, Isa Briones. I, I don't have a clue. But, um, 
yeah, I, I, I guess they're going to find ways to keep those two around. So I think making Seven a member of Starfleet is probably the easiest answer to that problem. I'm genuinely crushed because I thought we were going to get a full season of Seven and Elnor at Starfleet Academy with each other. But alas. Um, what does it say about your show when you are just like writing out all of your characters? It, it, you don't really have kind of a, a master plan at all. Yeah. It's just you're kind of making it up all on the fly. Or it, it's ne- it was never meant to be a character-based show. It was always meant to be a plot-based show. Yeah. And that's kind of, I don't know, it, it's like like I feel embarrassed for these folks. But uh, should I? Because they don't seem to be embarrassed. Like they, you get the sense that they are very proud of the, the work that they're doing here. And I just, I, I don't understand it. it, it um, so, okay. So going into next season, I think, we were debating this last week. I think Gerardi's still going to be around in this really uncomfortable, like, makeup and costume. Um, I guess she's a new guardian of a gateway, and I think they're implying that's what the season three thread, plot thread, is going to hang around. I'm guessing Corey will pop up here or there. I think they're just kind of done with Soji. We might get one last s- sign of her. I don't know, maybe. Um, Picard will be around Seven and Rafi, and then just the the TNG crew, I guess. Like that's, I don't know, man. Like this just seems so weird. Yeah, the only thing I wondered was if there could be another time jump between this season and next. That was the one thing I was wondering because they did that between yeah. one and two, which would give them distance to be like, oh, you know, Picard's back in Starfleet. Look at him; he's in his uniform again, or whatever things like that. And as opposed to just jumping off of this particular ending point, because just the fact that like it resolved itself, this season did not end with any sort of cliffhanger. It went back, you know, we saw him back at the Chateau holding hands with Laris, fade to black. It felt like it could have been an ending. Had there never been a season three, you'd be like, okay, well, that's the ending of Picard, I guess. So that's why I'm wondering if we now cut to like, I don't know, a year later, him and Laris are together you know sevens in starfleet and then we bring in the tng crew and elnor just died in a bar fight <laughs> elnor never spoken of again and i guess soji's still partying it up with the deltons <laughs> you know what? i don't really blame her you know no. have fun soji that sounds that sounds pretty cool to me well the picard crew is a downer like who wants to mm-hmm. spend a lot of time with them they seem really depressed i have no idea man wouldn't it be me at this point I did have one line that I really thought was funny. Again, like this episode had a few moments. I thought uh, Seven saying, how does money work? Was kind of funny. Um, There was also one, I I was wondering if it was a Brent Spiner improv where um, he's at the the launch and that woman says like, I never thought this day would come. And he goes, you didn't? You have a terrible attitude. (laughs) And I was like, that almost feels like Brent Spiner improving something. And they're like, that's pretty funny. Keep that in. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I, that... (laughs) That didn't quite work for me, like, um, because he kept following it up with other remarks all in a bid to get rid of her, right? Yeah, but at the same time, I was so thankful for kind of just, like, snarky kind of funny dialogue in a show that is often just unbearably earnest. Yeah, okay. Uh, I just thought he was being a prick. Like, Well, he was. It didn't, it didn't, <laughs> yeah, it didn't quite make me, uh chuckle but um maybe i i've just the mood that this show put me in i I could not have chuckled at anything at that point okay yeah i mean i i walked away from this one i think i preferred this episode to several others in the season but it it was like bad television 
that I could go, well, you know, it kind of answered whatever the questions were, and I walked away going, yeah, that was pretty lousy, pretty cheap television, but whatever, moving onwards. Like, it didn't enrage me the way some of the other episodes have. It didn't bore me the way some of the other ones have. It just was, you know, I don't even know the comparison points anymore. We've kind of moved past CW shows and things like um, MacGyver. We're in a whole other realm of, like, clunky television, but it was just kind of a acceptable version of clunky television. Well, I, I've just, I've never watched a show in which the storytelling is so messy. No. It's so incredibly messy here, and that you can tell that like the characters' attitudes and motivations they change from episode to episode, and it really depends on whatever plot points that they want to hit. Just think about when Guinan appeared the first time, and she hated L.A. Then twelve hours later, uh, it was like she was acting like Whoopi Goldberg that we know and love again, mm-hmm. and we're like, huh? You know, it's just like it was all to suit the plot. There, we never did see the FBI agent again. Who? Oh my um, god! Agent Agent I Wells. I totally forgot about Wells. <laughs> and he was such a big part of, like, episode eight. <laughs> it's like the whole episode, like, hung over him. I was just like, okay, well, he's going to matter by the end of the, the show. Nope. And you and I were, like, even debating what Wells was going to do in, like, the next episode or two. Nothing. 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 And, he, like... He, he lost his job. Okay, I have another... This was one thing they never answered, actually, uh, other than Wells. Um, so why did Talon look like, uh, uh, Laris? They're Romulans. They all look alike, Cam. <laughs> oh, boy. It's kind of like the Soongs. It's like, maybe they're just all the same family, that Romulan family, yeah. and they just have nothing but children that look exactly like them. Patrick Stewart should have played Rene Picard. <laughs> <laughs> Would the season have been better for it? Yes. Oh, hell Yes. <laughs> You know, Patrick Stewart is going for it. They de they de age him a little. Yeah. You know, not too much, but a little. They put like a nice, like respectable wig on him. You know, and it works out. I, I could see that. He could also play his parents. We could have done like a yeah. you know nutty professor kind of thing, like Eddie Murphy did. <laughs> Patrick Stewart as uh, the nutty professor. Yeah. Hercules. Hercules. <laughs> what? Is there anything to take from this going into a season three of Picard? Like, all hope is gone, right? Yes. Cam, <laughs> I went into season two hopeful. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't matter that they're bringing back the TNG crew. It doesn't matter what trailers or marketing that they might put on that might actually look good. I, I still know going into this, the, the writers are terrible. Uh, the editors are terrible. They don't know how to hit just basic musical cues. It's like all I can latch onto are like some of the characters that I like, but you know, Rios is gone now, dead in a bar fight. Um, like I don't know. Is it like, like w- w- I have no confidence in them to kind of deliver a story that I'll like because it's like these really convoluted season-long arcs that they have to kind of reverse engineer to make any sort of sense, and it's just like, eh, it's gonna suck. It seems entirely impossible that it would be good. And that was one thing. After I finished the uh, the premiere of um, Strange New Worlds, it, it's probably maybe too early to jump to the conclusion that this is going to be the Star Trek series I've always wanted. And, you know, it's all going to be great. Nothing but high flying going forward. I'm sure we're going to have dips in Strange New Worlds. But my attitude coming out of that pilot was so optimistic. I was like, you know what? I don't need Discovery or Picard to come back, period. 
Like, I would prefer we have this show, and maybe we go back to the drawing board at looking at another Star Trek show to launch, as opposed to what we've got, because those two, to me, are unsalvageable at this point. I would say when we watched Discovery, the first episode, the premiere, we were like, uh, okay, this is interesting. I don't quite know what the show is going to be week to week, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm intrigued. We'll continue on. Um, Same feeling when we watched the series premiere of Picard. We didn't really know what it was going to be you know, about, but we're intrigued. Um, Lower Decks, we kind of got what it was about. Um, it was still kind of a bit of a work in progress after a first episode. I'd say... Some pacing issues, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Prodigy, we're like, okay, this is like, this show has kind of a good sense of itself. Strange New Worlds, I think, by far, had the strongest series premiere out of all the new Star Treks. Like, where I just totally know that they have a sense of what they want to be. And even if they genre hop week to week, you know, the X-Files could have like a comedy episode one week, you know, where uh, uh, <laughs> like you're literally like laughing out loud. They could do a horror episode the next week. They could have something centered on alien conspiracies after that, you know. And I'm I'm ready for Strange New Worlds to jump around like that. I, I Picard doesn't have the capability to jump around like that. And, you know, when when we saw Discovery try... We had that really terrible casino episode. Um, yeah, right. The one with the fighting, the MMA fighting. Right. Yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> um, that's the thing. That's why I was just like, you know what? It, look, these shows are going to happen no matter what. It doesn't matter what I say. But I was very content after Strange New Worlds that like, this feels like where we need to be going. And kind of Picard and Discovery have kind of become the flotsam that we kind of need to move past because I don't think, I mean, honestly, I don't think they're doing the Star Trek brand any favors at this point. They're not bringing in any new viewers. So it's kind of like just servicing a dwindling number of people that are into them. And I I did see people saying, you know, they were really happy with the Picard finale, but that's not a building audience. So maybe it's time to look at Strange New Worlds and start looking at another live action show that, uh, you know, is not a copycat of Strange New Worlds, but is doing something that feels different. And take the example, character-based, kind of fun, you know, has a good sense of drama within an hour-long format, and just run with it. Just, But, but do something kind of like DS9, where it's it feels different than Strange New Worlds. Section 31, baby. You know it's coming. I'm not even against a Section 31 if they modeled it in a way that made sense. My whole fear of a Section 31 would be that it would feel exactly like Star Trek Discovery, in which case I'm like, no, don't, please don't make this show happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let me just ask you this. We kind of talked about like how uh, this series premiere of Strange New World ranks uh, among new Star Trek. Um, if we think about kind of the classic shows from the 60s to the early 2000s, as a series premiere, how do you think this stacks up? Well, it's no man trap, Tyler. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would say it's a better uh, premiere than the man trap. Encounter at Farpoint. Emissary is a weird one. And that I think Emissary does a very good job setting up DS9. It's not a particularly fun episode, though. But I would say in storytelling terms that Emissary is probably better. I think Caretaker, probably a little bit better. Broken Bow is pretty good, too. Yeah. So I would put this one kind of right in the middle. It was very good, though, and it gave me a real sense of the show and made me excited to keep watching, which this is one of the first episodes I've seen of Star Trek in, God, I mean, in terms of live-action Star Trek in, God, a couple years now? Two, three years? 
that I was actually actively excited about rewatching when it was over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I gave up on rewatching episodes of Discovery after we got to Stormy Weather. Yeah. And I gave up on rewatching episodes of Picard after Assimilation. Right. Or I, 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 when I hit Assimilation, I'm like, I'm not rewatching this. I had rewatched uh, the first two, uh, The Stargazer and Penance. But after that, I was just like, no thanks. And so I was just, yes, I'm rewatching this one. I am excited to do so as well. And, you know, critics have put out reviews. I haven't really read them too in, in depth at all because I want to keep spoiler free for upcoming episodes. But it seems like they were just genuinely enthusiastic about at least the first five shows they had to, you know, to watch. And so I'm just really excited to see the different curveballs they can throw my way, as you said, in different genres and doing different things. And Akiva Goldsman famously has been saying all the right things in interviews, talking about how they're going to be tackling all these different genres. And I'm like you know what, bring in other writers, you know, doing these types of episodes and let's see what we get. I'm ready for a Star Trek grab bag as opposed to a one-tone kind of dash of beige. Yeah. Yeah. Well, next week we're going to follow up with uh, episode two of season one of Strange New Worlds. Uh, I'm sure we'll continue to bash Picard and Discovery somehow. And uh, in the meantime, we can keep looking forward to what the summer will bring, hopefully with more Prodigy and Lower Decks on the way. That's right. And of course, you can leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. Please, it helps us out. Give us a five-star rating. Leave a review. Helps us with placements and rankings and all that sort of thing. And you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Vulcan Sex. Smith. Oh, yeah. You can find me <laughs> at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N as in new worlds that are strange. And by strange, you know what I mean. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.